Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand. However you found us, we're so glad you're here as we get behind the scenes with the Pursuit Spirits brand. I'm your host, Brian Biking, and joining me as never, it seems <laughs> like, uh, Ryan is away again. And so it's me and Kenny hanging out today. We got to figure out between him and Blake how they get all these damn points to go on vacations it's all the incredible. time. It's incredible. I really mean, I is. know it wasn't, but a couple episodes ago where he was talking about something, but is it, are we already to spring break? I thought he was talking about spring break. See, that's the good thing about his wife is that she is the planner. And so all he doesn't do anything. He just sits back. This is how much Ryan doesn't do anything. He doesn't even pack his own suitcase. He just goes. Yeah. His wife packs his suitcase for him. So talk about having that in lockdown. That sounds like a good business. I wish someone would come pack my stuff for me when I need to go on a trip. <laughs> no. I'm going to send her a message next time we go on a trip. Get my hand sandwich for lunch. Oh my gosh. I alley-ooped this episode to, to be a follow-up. I left the little cliffhanger and, and Ryan's out. So we, uh, <laughs> they're gonna have, we're going to have to wait another week. What, what, was the, what was the follow-up? I forget. We, so we were talking about uh, innovation. We were talking about innovation and what things could be done. And I had a follow-up question that I wanted to ask. And then, and then we had some feedback too. So I thought, hey, the next episode, we'll just go right back into that. And so we have to go without it. So we have to go without it and we'll go right into uh, another topic, which is fine. I'm a, I'm a little hoarse today, but uh, that's fine because I just ask the questions and you answer them. Yeah, that's the easy part. You were screaming too much for Taylor Swift I, at the Super Bowl last oh night. Oh my gosh, yeah. We, you know, we unlocked. I was, I was up real late last night unlocking the fact that if you play uh, the original Reputations album, as soon as you get a minute and 18 seconds into Super Bowl 58, it actually takes it all the way into the very, no, it doesn't. It doesn't do this. <laughs> yeah. Even with the unexpected overtime. I wonder if somebody was sitting there thinking, there, there's two things that people are thinking. One, they're they're actually like, oh my gosh, does it really do this? And the other people are already, un, they've already tuned out they to the podcast because yeah. of, of this. We did get some uh, a little bit of heat or some funny comments at least when we made the post reflecting on her new album cover with Ryan over on the, the <laughs> barrels. And someone was like, you can't both knock Taylor Swift and, and then, then also use, use her artistic you know, integrity. I'm like, well, yes, we can. All right, well, yeah. look, I am, I'm a Swifty. I'll go ahead and say it. Ryan is still, he needs some convincing. That's where it comes down to. Oh, it's because she's too popular. Oh, exactly. Because he, he doesn't, doesn't like he doesn't popular like things. Popular stuff. Exactly. It's only under the radar stuff that he likes. And he just needs to just go ahead and embrace it and know that there is nobody that's higher in the pyramid and in the 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 hierarchy than anybody right now yep. than her. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. Uh -huh. we'll, we'll see. I mean, maybe when... Um, but maybe when Reputation Taylor's version comes out, he'll he'll give it a spin. Yeah, all it's going to take is like one phone call from Kelsey to say like, "Hey guys, can we come check out your operation?" And and like, like all of a sudden, oh, I've, I've always loved Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "What are you talking about? I'm the biggest Chiefs fan you've ever seen." I'm kind of surprised that he like once like folklore or something come out, he wasn't like, "Oh my gosh, this is like so indie rock." I I know she's popular, but this is way up my alley yeah okay one last thing about taylor and to kind of figure out like would this ever happen to the bourbon industry it's like what impact do you think taylor would have you know if she had a bottle of bourbon or had something because i don't know if you saw they didn't show it on the film but it was in some tiktoks and whatever that she you know they did a pan on her mm -hmm. on the cam during the game and she chugged a beer Mm. like when it hit her so it was like she was sitting next to Blake Lively or whatever and Ice Spice and so she chugged a beer real quick and the whole crowd went crazy yeah. so, I wish I bet Bud Light's wishing for that right <laughs> yeah, now <I> know. 
<laughs> the uh, golly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I saw one thing, which maybe it's false because it sounds it sounds too hard to believe. I thought I saw something that like every second of airtime is about fifty thousand dollars to whatever like designer or whoever, like whatever clothing or whatever that she's wearing. I'm like, really? Fifty thousand every second? That there might no, be a but, lot of people that watch. But it. maybe I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking they're like putting, but they're not. They're not showing her every for a minute long. I mean, it's literally like two seconds and then off. So that is more reasonable when you put it in that context. But when you just break it down mathematically, I'm like, no way. But anyway, anyway, this is not a Taylor. Hey, that's a good idea. Maybe when it's just you and me, it could be a Taylor Swift. Let us know. Podcast.com. If you want us to go into just a lot, Swifty podcast. But anyway, on today's podcast, what some some folks were messaging in, and this is something that we've hit on a little bit in some ways when we've talked about going into markets, but we haven't actually broken down the finer details of choosing who you go with as a distributor when you're getting into markets and all the things that go into that. So I figured that would be a good time to dig into this. I know that that you both have some of the conversations with the distributors that it goes, but I know you mentioned that you have the the primary conversations when it comes to distribution. So let's kind of start wide for a minute and just talk about what does it look like? You know, we, we know that you need to have a distributor because of the three-tier system to enter into the stores in different markets. But what is there more than that, that the front facing person, you know, the, the listener doesn't, doesn't see. Yeah. I mean, I think people understand our frustrations when we talk about it ad nauseum all the time and to kind of set some context as well. A lot of this came because of bourbon pursuit. We had a really good episode with John Foster of ragged branch. He used to be head of sales. He's still head of sales there, but he was head of sales for smooth ambler before they were bought by Pernod and so on and so forth. And so, you know, he's got a lot of background in just in sales and distribution. And to be fair, it's like when Ryan and I started this, like we made tons of mistakes getting into getting into sales and distribution. We're finally getting our feet from underneath the business right now. But to also give you an idea of why this exists and, and really why you need a distributor is because in spirits, I don't know. There might be a few states, but large and in part, there's no way to do what they call self-distribution. You just can't open up shop. And then if the liquor store down the street wants to carry you, they can just come down here, buy it at wholesale, and then go and sell it in their store. That's what you do for Whole Foods. That's what you do for a lot of different products that are out there that you're like, hey, I want to sell your stuff. Say you you own a small trinket shop and you know you want to support local artists. Well, you you can buy it direct from that artist. You buy it at a wholesale cost. You make your 20, 30 margin points or on it, whatever it is. And that's the way most systems work inside of America, except alcohol. So alcohol lives by the three-tier distribution model where it says a distributor must pick it up at wholesale. They have to make their 20 to 30 points, and then they sell it again to the retailer, and then they sell it to you for an additional 20, 30 points higher on top of that, right? So you're already looking at 50% cost increase by default of what it would come if you say you, I wouldn't say bought it direct from, say, the distillery or the manufacturer, but you do have to pay an extra 50% just because you have two other layers of middlemen in between there, between you and the actual product. But distributors do play an important role at the end of the day. And that's because you can't be everywhere, right? What we've learned so far in distribution is that this is a high touch type of sale and environment. There is no such thing as just 
catching lightning in a bottle. I shouldn't say that. There's a few brands out there that catch lightning in a bottle and they don't need to go do any selling, right? For some reason, they're able to get a little bit of wind behind them and underneath their sales. They catch on to mass market appeal. They open up a new market. You don't even have to go into stores and have them try it and try the product and say, hey, you should try this, get on the shelves. And once you get on the shelves, then how do you get it off the shelves? And this is where I talk about, well, it's it's very high touch to be able to do this, is that you have to be able to have a product that not only has to, it's just a big educational hurdle. So we have to be able to talk about this to our distributor. Our distributor then has to go and take this product and sell it into the retail store. The retail owner then has to take that product and sell it to you, the end consumer. So consider the game of phone right here and be able to say like, oh, I'm going to tell you my five or six talking points. All right. That's going to get diluted down to maybe three talking points and half of them just got torn to bits. Mm -hmm. And then I go, uh, and then it goes to the retailer and then he has our product and he goes, yeah, it's just another good MGP brand. And you're like, okay, like there is something that missed all across the board here. And so you have this huge educational hurdle about what it takes just to get your product out the door into the retailer's hands or into a, a consumer's hands from there. Now, there is the the legal aspect of that, that it, it does have to be that way. That's just the way that it happened after prohibition. Prohibition was repealed. And when it was repealed, that means that every single state went to their own form of alcohol licensing for those particular kinds of laws. That's why you have some states that are control states, some states that are open free market states that allow you to have distributors and so on and so forth. But there is still a, a layer of that three-tier distribution everywhere you go, except in DC. That's the other kind of caveat to all this. Now, the they do still play in a very important role. And that's because I am in the business of creating whiskey. I'm not in the business of creating a logistics company. And for me to sit there and try and get our product as on as many stores as that we have currently, it's an impossible ask. And as most and let's be real, like most people that are in business and the business of selling they're lazy. Their goal is they should be lazy. They want the products to sell themselves. Right. You don't want to be it like, what was it? Will Smith, the pursuit of happiness when he was selling bone density scanners, where you got to go and you got to like encourage me. Like, no, like you got to try it. It's like, this is what it, it's like. You want to just, you want to sell the easy thing. Right. And so that's why you see a lot of retailers, like they don't want to pick up the newest type of vodka that you know, is made with, I don't know, we'll say better ingredients. Like it doesn't matter. Why? Because Tito's is over here. It sells for $19.99 and they can sell a ton of it without having to do any effort whatsoever. Now, the only thing that's the difference there is that, well, Tito's is going to come in and Tito's is going to say, well, I want, you're going to make less margin on my product because it's so easy for you to sell. Right. Now, on the other side of that, you could have somebody that's trying to take a little bit of Tito's market share and they're going to give you more margin points. But as a retailer, as a distributor, you have to go sell that. Like you have to be the one that's going to be on the other side of that. So you are incentivized to go do that. But that's just the the dichotomy of what it is, is that you have to have, you have, to have the people that are going to be educated to go and do it. But you also have the, when I talk about the, just the word distribution, it's just the sales force, the vast amount of people that can go and do it. We couldn't hire, when I talk about the logistics side, we couldn't even hire enough people to go and do this. If we didn't have the distributor, 
there's no way that we could have, let's say I employed one person in every state that we're distributed into, and their job is to literally drive around every single day and try and get bottles on the shelf. They might be able to start making some ground and getting bottles on the shelf. But the problem is, is that then you start losing that touch point. You start losing that ability to have a relationship with a store owner because you see them once and they might not see you again for six, eight, nine months, a year, whatever it is, until you know, you're done with your tour around the state and you start making your way back again. Mm-hmm. And you've got to see like, and we've talked about this all the time is that, all right, maybe they had the product. Did it sell out? Did they forget to reorder? Who do they reorder from? Do they gonna, Are they going to call you? Odds are, if you have one case in there, they're not going to, if you have, I mean, go to the store of your total wine or whatever big box retailer you have. Imagine each one of those brands had their own person you had to contact to get a reorder. That's, it'd be mind numbing to right. think like I've got 400 contacts for just the bourbon aisle. So you've got to have something inside of there that, that kind of, you know, levels out that playing field. And that's of course where the distributor comes in because they're going to have a portfolio and a catalog of products that makes it a lot easier to be able to work, be, make it easier for the store owner to do that. And we've talked about it before is that even as a distributor, they know that they have a catalog of products, but even though they have a catalog of products that if it's sold out, they might not notice it and they might not restock your order anyway. And so you always have to have people in there constantly checking and, and monitoring your product to see exactly what the turnover rate is. Is it selling through? Is it being reordered? And so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different variables that that go into play here, but don't want to take away from the the main source of the argument of like, well, how do we even choose the distributor to begin with? So let's jump into an example. We can actually break this into two things. Let's let's talk about maybe first a state that has multiple distributors. You don't have to name any by names if you don't want to. And why you may have gone with one of them versus the other. And then on the second time, as you know, visiting another question, let's go to one that you do work with that's in multiple states that you're in and why you might not have chosen to go with them in a different market. Yeah. Well, let's let's kind of talk about you know, what do you do when you choose a distributor and sort of like, how does that, how does that go? Is it like speed dating? You sit at a table and you get to know them and I wish you it was swipe that. left or right. Yeah, I wish it was that easy. No, it's, it's getting, everything's high touch. It takes, it takes time. It takes relationships. It takes conversations to be able to do all that. And even that it's like, okay, you had one good conversation with somebody. Hey, give me, give me your portfolio of products, your catalog of products. Oh, okay. I see barrel bourbons on here. Oh, I see smooth ambler. Oh, I see whomever. I'm going to give them a call and see what they think of you. I mean, I'm not going to tell them that, but obviously they know that's what happens in the background. So their goal is to make sure that they keep all their suppliers happy and vice versa. We've had other people call us and be like, Hey, we're thinking about launching with this distributor. What do you think? And we're like, honestly, I wish we wouldn't have. I mean, we have those conversations all the time and it's just, that's kind of like the the backside of this game of, of how it all works. So, and then you kind of said, well, do you go with somebody that's vast in a lot of markets or you kind of have something that's just in your pocket or your backyard? I think you're, it's a nice way of saying, do you go with a Republic or a Southern Glaciers or do you go with some sort of more independent, not so big? Right. This is, this is really where it becomes a, a big sort of, what do you want scenario? If you want, to go nationwide really quick and you have a ton of money that you can do it, I think RNDC and Southern is by far the best way to go because you have 
a dedicated sales force that wouldn't necessarily just be for, you're not competing with Beam at that point because they all have separate, say like craft divisions underneath inside of it. That would be more in tune for what a we are. And we can, we can still have a, a, a play inside there. But the other thing is that you just got to understand that this RNDC, this other, everything you do with inside these groups is like, it's so big that there is an opportunity that you could get lost. And you are also competing with a ton of other different brands inside of their portfolio. That's the, the thing that probably scared me the most when I got into this is because I don't know if we would get just overshadowed by anything else. We've talked about on this show before about how distributors, everybody's coin operated at the end of the day. It's sales, right? And so they want some sort of incentive for them to actually go out and sell your product. Just making 25% on selling your product is not enough. You have to, because we'll say, and this is is a real world scenario, we'll say this. This is something we did with a, a market launch that, technically kind of failed. So we said, all right, what we'll do is we'll do a $15 a case kickback on every single pod or what's called a point of distribution that is sold into a store. And if and that's a three bottle placement. So if you got three bottles of every four one of our SKUs, we will pay you back, what, $60. And then if it's all four, we will also put in a $10 kicker on top of that. So as a sales rep, you go and you get a mix max case of, of, you know, 12 bottles in there. All right. So we just lost $70 worth of margin on that. Right. So our margin points are already starting to decrease on there, but the goal is to actually get placement, get it in the store get it on the shelf and in the front of the eyes of the customer. And once it's there, then we've got to do our marketing to actually get it off the shelf so that, that they can go and reorder. Now in the reorder, no, they're not going to get any type of incentive to go and just pick up and say like, okay, those three sold out. Let's go ahead and bring on a case. They're not going to go, they're not going to get an incentive for doing that, but their goal and their job is to actually go in the store and check and see the shelf and be like, oh, there's Perseet United bourbon. It's sold out. Let's go ahead. You need to put another case order for this. And they'll go, oh, okay, sure. Go ahead and put another case. That's the way that it's supposed to work, right? So you do these market launches, you go. Now the problem is, it's like, okay, so I do a $15 case pod with a $10 kicker. And then all of a sudden Beam comes in or whomever. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick on Beam. Uh, we'll just say a, a big one comes in and they're like, we'll do 20. Okay, so I just lost any type of visibility that a rep would have into my brand or what they would actually go out and promote. Because as a salesperson, you ha- you're in a store maybe 30 minutes before they have to get out and go to their next store. So- they have 30 minutes to talk to, to actually go scan the store, look at all their products, and then go and pitch the owner or pitch the store owner on a new product. And at that point, you're down to maybe 15 minutes. And let's say the store owner is busy and now you're down to 10 minutes. So you got 10 minutes to talk to them about a particular product. What do you think they're going to talk about? Well, it's obviously the one that's going to pay them more money, right? So you're losing out on that opportunity already just because you're not offering a big enough incentive. And I'm throwing out an, an actual real world example. I'm not saying that we did get outbid on something like that, but that's certainly what can happen and, and what does happen. And not only that, it's 
you have to couple that with market visits of actually going to these places, actually getting in front of the distributors, taking them out to dinner and trying to get in front of more store owners and, and everything like that. And so you add up the cost of flights, hotels, and meals, and you're underwater. <laughs> like You're not making any money on it. Yeah. This has been a conversation that Ryan has had with Trey Zoller, who is the founder of Jefferson's. And Ryan asked Trey, he was like, there's got to be a better way. And Trey says, well, let me know when you find out. Because this is this is how it's always been. There's really no good system involved to, to be able to do that. The only thing that I found that's kind of been a, maybe a, a ray of beacon or a shining little light is when you go and visit Ohio. I think the system and the controls that Ohio has in place, because it is a control state, is very interesting from a, a technology standpoint, because every single bottle and every single case is tracked by an online system. You do not have that when you have an independent retailer and distributor network, because nobody has insights to the inventory across the broad spectrum about what sits everywhere. So by having stores that are in the system and all of the data of their inventory, their point of sale is all feeding back into a larger system as well. Well, it knows that let's say a, a store gets down to one bottle of Pursuit United bourbon. Well, what that's going to do is that's going to trigger a notification to go back up to the, to I say distributor, but it is their warehousing. It's going to go kick that off. And it's going to say like, Hey, this has now hit the threshold of its minimum. There's only one bottle on the shelf. It's going to go ahead and kick off a purchase order. That's going to request one case from inventory to be shipped to the store. So now they have seven bottles on the shelf and it'll do that for every single product that gets down to one bottle. So that gets you out of having somebody that has to be in a car and go visit accounts and go scan the shelves and be like, oh, you're out of this one, you're out of this one, you're out of this one. Instead, it's all done digitally. It's all done via that way. So I, I love seeing that type of innovation just come from a, a simple reorder standpoint. Plus I can actually see, and most distributors, we can see exactly through an online portal what they have in inventory. And so we can just send them a message and say, hey, you're running low on this you should probably put in a purchase order for X amount to be able to take care of the next 90, 120, 180 days or, or whatever it is. Now, do other state controlled, you know, do other controlled states operate this way as well? Or is it just, you know, that you notice from Ohio because that's the only one that you're, you know, that you're working with them right now? Yeah, I'm only talking because I know the Ohio system because that's where we're at. I don't know about Virginia and Pennsylvania and everywhere else yet. We'll get there. We'll figure it out. I mean, that's the that's the thing is like people that are consumers, they live in these control states and they go, oh, it's so bad. We don't get any good bourbon here. It's blah, blah, blah. blah. I was like, eh, you know, but there's some, there's some really good positives to it. One is that if you do find bourbon, it's not jacked up. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's controlled by the state. So one, as a consumer, that's great. And then Two is like, even when it comes all the way back to us as the producer, we're able to act a little bit faster to know exactly like what is the trend of sell through? What are the stores that carry it? I mean, we can see down to the store level that, that carries it with real time inventory. That's been a problem. Like when we launched in Georgia, yes, we, we have a, a good distributor down there. We're, we're starting to do another relaunch here there soon. I'll be traveling down to Atlanta and we'll try to find Ryan to come down with me and we'll set up some events. So if you're down in Atlanta, look out for this real quick, but you know, we'll, we'll go and we did a launch. We didn't, we didn't have the ambassador program. We didn't do anything. We just said, here, here it is. Go sell. 
which maybe is a, another big mistake, which I'll talk about in a little bit, by just giving them product and expecting them to go out there and do it. And so we didn't have any control or say into what stores it went into. We really had no idea. And so stores, it went into it. Some stores sold out. They Some stores said like, well, it took longer than 90 days to sell out and we just don't want to carry it anymore. I have all the data that shows me that you carry it, but I don't know if you're sold out, if you still have it in stock or whatever. So there was at one point where we had to go through and figure out, well, what is the, what is our rescue plan for Georgia look like? And I started looking through all of the old data and I started calling stores directly and I'm like, Hey, do you still have this in stock? Some would say no. And if they didn't, I'd said, is there a reason why? And some people I mean, and with all humility said, yeah, it just took too long to sell out. We didn't want to care anymore. Some people said, well, they told me it was allocated. And I only got one case and I never saw it again. And it's like in cases like that, I'm kind of going, all right, so our distributor is the one that messed up because A, it's, well, it's not allocated. It's, that's a good sales tactics by a lot of the distributors out sure. there. And that's what they do. I mean, I, I'll tell you a story here in a little bit too, but They'll go ahead and they'll do that. And then they'll sell out that case and the retail retail store doesn't know any better. And they'll think like, oh, that was my allocation for the year. I can't get any more. So there's there's two sides of it of, of what we have to go through to help fix those things. What does the time frame normally look like? Like for for you know, maybe a couple examples that you're working with too. You know, again, I think a lot of people will be like, Oh, come on, like why aren't you in Indiana? Why aren't you here? Like, I mean, what what's the average time frame look like to actually start to to build some of these relationships or or have some just been easier than others yeah i mean the the good thing is that we have data right not nobody else nobody else has data that backs up their their decisions because of bourbon pursuit and through our hosting platform which is megaphone which is owned by spotify we now get better insights and better data to our listeners to see exactly what states they're listening to and what states they're listening from. Couple that with, as bad as it sounds, Sealbox data. I mean, Sealbox is one of really good points of being able to see exactly like, okay, where is a majority of people that are purchasing from of our products that do not have our distribution? And that is a, a really good indicator. You kind of mesh that up together to see exactly where are our fans at, where are the markets that we need to go and look at. And so, of course, two of the big ones are California and Florida. And I'm sorry to say that we can get into between California, Florida, New York, and Texas, how tough those markets are. We can take that at a later discussion. The The other side of that is, is you know, we also want to sit there and see, like Indiana, great, great example. So Indiana is one of the states that we're heavily looking at and only because of those two data points combined. We want to make sure that we satisfy the needs of our fans of where they're at. And that helps us kind of look at what it goes into. Now, how long does it take to kind of start those conversations? It could take anywhere between three to six months, I would say on average, because you've got to start reaching out to a few. And by the way, let's roll back a few years here. We never reached out to a single distributor when we first started. Distributors were coming to us, mm-hmm. right? We're talking height of the bourbon boom. They wanted more product. People couldn't get enough of it. So it was an easy conversation to have. Like, hey, they'd send us a message and be like, all right, well, let us go ahead. We'll think about it and I'll let you know. And that kicked off the other conversation of like, well, let me go talk to these other people. What do they think of this distributor? Now we're starting to get to the point where, all right, so we need to open up the state of Indiana. All right, well, we need to get a distributor in Indiana. Well, let's talk to like two or three or four people, whoever we know in Indiana, 
and say, what do you see? Like kind of give me your gauge. Like, what do you like? What do you not like? Especially if we can find somebody at the retail level, if there's a big retail account that we know, like I know big red liquors that's up there. It's like, if we could talk to them and be like, Hey, what's your, what's your, your top, like two or three different distributors and who do you like to work with? And Oddly enough, most of them, they will say at some point Republic or Southern because they are very easy to work with. Uh, we've made a we made a decision to not go that route just yet. I'm not opposed to that discussion, but we haven't gone that route yet just because of we want to kind of stick with the independent network because as soon as if you don't have enough bourbon to sell, that's a good thing because if we can get your mind share, then that's exactly what we want. That's why we've had a really good success with two of our markets only because they didn't have a lot of big bourbon brands to actually go and promote. So we got all of their business, which has been fantastic. The, you know, when we start those discussions, yes, you got to just, again, it's just kind of a handshake, everything, how's it sound? What's it, what, what are you going to do for me? What do you expect from me? So on and so forth. There are going to be some distributors, they expect market support. And when I say market support, I want you visiting once a quarter. You need to you need to give us fifteen dollars a case for tastings. Which when I say that, it's like instead of me giving fifteen dollars a case as a sales incentive, they want fifteen dollars a case that I sell them. They want fifteen dollars for every case back, and that goes into what's called like a local marketing fund. And that local marketing fund then is able to. And by the way, sometimes they'll match it, right? Which is which is good. But they will take that local marketing fund and they will hire those folks that are doing tastings in your local liquor stores through agencies to actually go and taste the products and go and sell and kind of build that off. So you have to have some sort of marketing budget built into every single kind of case sale. So sometimes there's that. Sometimes it, it could be other distributor incentives that they want to be able to just just to sell your product. On the other hand, it could be as simple as like, hey, just come here for the launch and then we'll take it from there and we'll see how it goes. And then we'd love to have you in the market whenever you could. Like sometimes it's that easy. You just don't know who you're going to work with or how it's going to work. I've heard things of working with the big distributors that, yeah, it can get really expensive because if you want to go and say you want to say you want to launch in California or something like that. I actually, I'll, I'll throw out a, a perfectly good example. This happened with us in Texas when we, I don't, I'll say that maybe we, we botched our launch a little bit in Texas because we didn't really set expectations properly from either side. And the distributor didn't really have an incentive to actually go out there and sell anything. So yeah, we sent them a thousand cases, but it just sat there in the warehouse. They didn't do anything with it. And when we finally did put an incentive in place, we saw some some actual sales actually happening. You know, we we ended up getting a lot of product out of the warehouse. But then after that, you know, they came back and they said, hey, we need to talk about some sort of local marketing fund or, you know, we need a tasting budget. And I was like, all right, what are you thinking? And they said, we need $75,000. I was like, what? Like, you want me to give you $75,000 so you can go and hire agencies to go and do tastings at stores? And that's how the ambassador program was born was because I was like, there's got to be a better way. I'm not going to do this. So, but again, like that was because we failed on our end to do the right market support, the right relationship building and stuff like that in the very beginning. And so we've, we've, we've learned stuff like that the hard way. And that's why 
when we go into this a little bit further, that that's like the one of the first big hires that Ron and I want to make is get ourselves out of sales and distribution and have somebody take all that over yeah. because it's just it's just a whole different animal that we we personally like we've had to take the the responsibility for it, but we both don't like it. We don't want to do it, but it's part of the the game of, of what it is. So it's just kind of goes back in the play of again, just more of what it takes to just get your product out there, get it in front of people. But there is, it's a, it's a, it's a healthy balance. And I, I keep calling it a game. It's not really a game. It's like, cause these are their livelihoods and this is the the role and the, the, the role that they do play. And it's still, like I said, it's a very important role because I can't get into 500 stores without Texas, without them. I can't, I literally cannot do it. Even if there was self-distribution, we couldn't do it. It just wouldn't be feasible because I'm not a logistics company and I don't want to build one. So they still play a very vital role into all this and direct to consumer isn't going to fix this either, right? It's still going to be something that they're still going to be there. And it was on us to start there and figure out, okay, we've got to learn how to manage these relationships better and how to get our product in stores and how to find that one person that's going to champion our brand and continue to keep talking about it and build from there. So I know you mentioned that most of the distributors then that you're currently working with are some of the smaller ones. Are there any of them that cross over some of the markets that you're in and you've chosen not to stick with them? Or is everyone kind of in their own location? They haven't, they don't vary in a different state. So you haven't even had the option or. So there's a few like our, our, Distributor in Texas, they're opening up in Florida and, you know, he's encouraged and said like, y'all should come to Florida with me. And as much as we have a good amount of listeners down there, the problem with Florida is Florida's a, and this is going back to big states, Texas, like I said, we kind of botched that one. We're trying to fix it. Florida, New York, California, those are massive markets. It takes a lot of money to do things right. And it takes a lot of money to do a proper market launch. And I'd say a lot of money. I'm talking like, you know, $75,000 is just, you know, maybe the tip of the iceberg sure. when it comes to something like that, which is more money than we don't even have to be able to do something like that. So we would have to get their money in the door first and then pay them back. And so the, the problem with it is just like when you go to something like Florida, it's just it's just a huge animal. You've got to have people stationed up all and down the coast. There's just a lot of ABC stores. There's just so many different things to worry about. And have we not gone to other different states with the same distributor? There might be a little crossover that we haven't done. And that's just because even a distributor, they might have somebody that is like overarching between the states, at the very end of the day, you're still dealing with individual teams, individual sales teams. Tennessee is a very good example of this. Even though in Tennessee, we have we have two distributors because Tennessee is actually broken up into four markets. You have Nashville, Knoxville, Memphis, and Chattanooga. Each one of these markets, you have to register with, an, with a distributor. So we have three of them with one and one with another. Now, even though we have three of them with one, I don't have, and especially with our last distributor, I didn't have a single touch point or a single point of contact. I had to talk to the salesperson for Chattanooga or the salesperson for Nashville or the salesperson for whatever, or Memphis to be able to figure out, well, what's going on instead of, yeah, instead of just having that sort of like overarching layer. And that's a, that's at the Tennessee level. Now you, you bubble this up 
uh, let's say let's say Texas Texas is a great example. There is a, a single point of contact, and it kind of just filters out and be like, there you go, Austin, Houston, Dallas, whatever. But when you do this and say that particular distributor is also between two different states they're not going to have that oversight into two different states, right? So you're going to have individual sales teams no matter what. And some sales teams perform well in one state and some just don't do as well in another. Another per example is we ended up breaking up, which was honestly, it was a feat that nobody else has been able to do. We were actually able to break up with a distributor in Tennessee. And we did it because our distributor in Tennessee was heavily focused in like the Nashville markets and stuff like that. Like Bud Light was their biggest account. That's all they sold were beer. And it's because we, our original distributor that was in Nashville was purchased by this other distributor and all the spirits business just kind of like went away and they didn't really pay attention to it. And so we ended up having to get a legal release from the distributor, which Anybody that doesn't know in Tennessee, like when you pick your distributor, you're married to them for, for life. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you can't get out of it unless they also agree to release you. They could say no. And here's the other thing is that we had to do a lot of, I would say, damage control as well because we didn't really take that seriously. And, you know, we, we might've pissed them off a few times. I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious. And Ryan, I wasn't here on this phone call, but Ryan had the phone call and he he straight up told Ryan, he was like, you piss me off one more time. I will let you product sit in this warehouse and rot forever. I won't even really, I won't even sell it. There will be nobody in this area that carries you and there's nothing we could do about it. Right. That's like, that's a bully tactic, but legally there's no way we can get out of it. This, it doesn't exactly time, but it does a little bit. So, you know, one of the things that it seemed like for the consumer, you know, when we went to the batches on the products, I think we, you know, there's always identification for one, but then the other part is, oh, and then you'd, you'd be able to know which batch you like, maybe they're a little bit different, but how did that play out? Did you see in, in some of the markets that you went in? Because at least, you know, on the sealbox side of things, you know, we had them as individual SKUs, but I would think some of these other places would not have them as individual SKUs. So what does that look like when you're looking at, you know, sell through of, of an existing product they might have, but you're trying to tell them it's new, but it's not new, but it, but it's new. You know, what is the, do you, can you, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, this was something that I, I took this as a, I would say a learning lesson, but I, I kind of took this one head on first is because I saw the model that the barrel built, the barrel bourbon, where every batch was unique and every single one had a different UPC. Each one was a new SKU. And so you have this idea of SKU sprawl of there's just like, there's just so many out there. Now it worked a lot in Barrel's favor in the very beginning because you would have maybe maybe two, maybe three batches side by side. And you'd be like, oh, well, this is it. But then you get to the point where there's like four, five, six. And it's like, okay, now it's too much. I originally wanted a model what we are doing with United off of something like Weller 107, where it's just a product that you know that's reliable and good. You can always just go, I'd say you can go and get it. It's always on the shelf. Just go and pull the bottle. And and that UPC that, 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 that you scan on the back, it doesn't change. We kind of adapted this to try to have a hybrid of both because from a consumer standpoint, the ones that care, the ones that want to pay attention, they're going to understand the batch codes. They're going to be the ones that listen to us and they're going to know exactly what to chase after. My job is to create less noise at the distributor level 
because a I don't want to piss them off too much and just like oh here's another product here's this and this is what's different blah blah, blah. like they don't care they just want to they just want to go and sell what sells so if we can get into a shop one time and that barcode is registered with them one time I don't need to go and have that conversation again and again yeah. and again. So all I really have to do is I kind of get that pass through that one UPC, that one barcode that gets in. And then on our side, yeah, the batches are going to change. They're going to have batch codes on the side, but only the assuming con- consumer is really going to know about it. So if you listen to this, yeah, you're going to know what 11CD and 7CC and what all these things actually mean. Broader market, most people, especially at the retailer, especially at the distributor level, they don't care. They don't want to know. And you have to, this just goes down to basically everything that we have been learning is that we just got to dumb this down for everybody across the board. So if we can dumb it down and make it easier to kind of have that that streamlined process, it's going to make it a lot easier for us in the long term too. Yeah. But for, so for anyone listening though, who's wondering, hey, why, you know, 7cc still on the shelf here i really want 11cc you know again that's part of the reason if it's still sitting on the shelf there like there's no reason for them to move into a different product i mean to them it's it's all the same and so you know just for that listener that might be in that situation that's the reason why you're not seeing it as a new product because it's not that same model like barrel or how you used to see other brands with all their different single barrels or anything like that yeah that was that was really something that we talked about the very beginning of figuring out how do we how do we streamline this and that's why I wanted to kind of go the Weller 107 route, but thankfully we have a lot of avid listeners out there and they said, well, how do I know which batch number do I have? And therefore we introduced the batch codes, but we we don't want to go into the idea of having SKU sprawl and, and knowing that we have to carry you know, 40, 50 different SKUs. So instead we can focus on, you know, five, six, 10, whatever it is, it's going to be a little more manageable because again, when you have these different SKUs, I've talked about it from an operations side of what it takes to register labels, what it takes to actually take that SKU. Because all those SKUs, if you didn't really know, you can go look it up. It's called GSIN. Uh, you can actually go, you can buy barcodes. I would encourage you to never do that. But you can go through GSIN and you can buy your barcodes directly through there. Because if you go to like buyabarcode.com, those barcodes do not actually work at Home Depot and Kroger. Mm-hmm. They only work in subset of different places. So uh, if you're looking for something that's going to be universal and works everywhere, you got to go through directly to GSIN, which is oddly enough, owned by Kroger. I thought you were going to say Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> owned it, by. It would have it been great to have oh my gosh. full circle on that one. You know, most of this is just kind of transparency for a listener, but I also know that we have listeners of the show who who are brands, who are wannabe brands, who are learned, you know, is there anything that you've, gained in your roles through this. I know you talked about making mistakes and you fine tune the way that you all operate, but for somebody who might just be getting uh, to this step here, you know, is there anything that you would just give as a, as a bit of advice to them starting off in that journey? Yeah. I think one thing that we really should have done when we first started was to send at least one person of our team to moonshine university, not to learn how to distill rum, but how to take that, 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 three hour, six hour, whatever it was on distribution and sales, because Ryan was like, oh my God, like if we would have known this three years ago or four years ago, our lives might be completely different. Maybe not different, not financially, but at least from all the headaches and all the stumbling we've had to learn over time, we we would have been in a better position because we would know exactly how 
distribution works, how distributors think, what the financial model looks like. And we just didn't try to go and figure it out ourselves. So there's that. And then if you, you know, you're not going to spend the time to go and be a distiller, that's fine. That's when you should probably just go ahead and pay the consulting dollars and look at somebody like, uh, there's like Thoroughbred that's out there. They were on the podcast too at one point, really getting to understand exactly like what's it going to take to get my product in the market? What's it going to be like to actually go and find a distributor that's going to work for me? And what are my intentions or what are my goals with it? That is kind of goes back to what John from Ragged Branch said that when you choose a distributor and where do you want to go, you know, that's really going to be a big indicator of what do you want to do with your brand? Are you somebody that looks at this as a long-term play? You want to build the brand. You want to have really good success. You want to slow build it because, you know, you've got enough product to be in like maybe one or two states right now. And, you know, you, you just kind of want to have a healthy growth sort of thing at this. Or do you want to take the Penelope model? And you're like, how can we go wide and as fast as we can? Can we get that money in, buy enough products, stock the shelves, and just like keep turnover going and just go like what looked like a hockey stick? Because that is what people that are your your Luxcos and your Constellations and your Diageos, that's what they want to buy, right? They want to buy brands with national recognition. And so you've got to figure out what is the what is the model that you're going for. Now the smaller side of that that I just mentioned, yeah, you can you can bootstrap that. You can get a small investment to do it versus Penelope model, which probably took tens of millions of dollars just to even get to what they were doing just because of what it takes to be able to get the liquid, the packaging. I mean, you had to nail the packaging, right? And so they, they went through a few different packaging changes. Like I'm sure that cost upwards of $10,000 or more. I mean, it just it just goes into sort of like where do you want to see your brand and where you want it to go? Because if you're looking for full-on national distribution, yeah, you're not going to go with a distributor in every single state, right? You want what I, I call it one throat to choke. Ryan says it one one headache or something like that. But you know, you want one point of contact to be able to make sure that you can get it as many places as possible, and whether it's going to be on premise, off premise, and so on and so forth. So, what's the goal of pursuit? I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> it changes. No, actually, it's like here's the thing: is I don't think our business model really lends itself to being purchased by anybody. I, I don't see it. If we were smart, we would have gone with one distillery. We would have gone with just a Bardstown, right? Because if we would have done that, we probably would have been a better acquisition target for somebody that might even be like a Bardstown or Pritzker or, you know, name anybody that just wants one one source to worry about because at that point you're worrying about brand recognition. It's not really distillation capacity or anything like that. And of course we don't really have the distillation capacity because it doesn't really matter. So we're going for the brand side of things and our model by actually blending multiple States and different things. We we're relying on four different distilleries to make our product. That's four different choke points or four different ways of, you know, this table could collapse at any point. So we have to figure out how do we, I mean, I guess it's better than just having one choke point, right? And having one source dry up, but there'll always be another one. Right. I think that's the other thing is that we can we can always replace it with something else. So we have we have that that's kind of going against us from a, an acquisition standpoint. We're never going to say no to having the phone call if somebody said, "Hey, I'd love to be able to talk about this." Like, okay, let's let's talk. Let's see what it looks like because as much fun as it is doing this. I mean, there's definitely a lot of things that by being acquired by somebody would make our lives a ton easier and sales and distribution is one of them. I mean, if I could get that 
out of underneath me and that's somebody else's problem and I can focus on what we do best product development a little bit of operations you know being in front of the people and shaking hands and kind of like being the face of the brand like that's the fun part and bathroom remodels and bathroom remodels I, I'm doing plenty of that as well yeah well I, I thought that was a really insightful episode i think it would have been nice to have uh, ryan on there but i think there's something that could be revisited too down the line as we continue to grow get into other markets uh, and get his perspective but he'd have to he'd have to be here yeah. in order for that to happen so yeah we'll know in due time and we'll look back and be like you know what maybe having 40 different distributors was a mistake mm-hmm. so we'll we'll see but that's been our thing is like we've had really good success with the distributors that we've chosen because they aren't so big and they can put some emphasis on us. Now, there are some distributors that we do have that have now gotten so big that we are kind of getting forgotten and it's just part of what it is. But we, you know, we've got, we do have really good relationships. We're continually doing that uh, and building on it. We just have to continually making that part of our, our everyday thought process of like, oh, okay, let's check in the distributor day, see how they're doing. And, yeah. You know, it's, people just, they, they just want to feel good about themselves. And so you just kind of, it's like you ever get a, a text from your significant other and they're like, hey, you doing okay today? Like, yeah, yep. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's like, yeah. It's like some people just, they just want to have that touch point. For sure. Thanks to David and Todd both for, for kind of hitting on this particular topic point for us to discuss on the podcast. If you all have topics you want us to talk about, podcast at PursuitSpirits.com. Let us know. If you have feedback or questions for the guys, you can also do that. Podcast at PursuitSpirits.com. Thanks again, as always, everybody, for tuning into the podcast. Until next time, we'll see you all later. Cheers. Cheers.